Good afternoon, and welcome to Rise and Shine, not just for mornings anymore. Do you want to help make the world a better place but don't know where to start? Join us as we explore the possibilities on today's show with inspiring guests, uplifting music, and new ideas. So, let's get started. Here are your hosts, Lorianne Rising and Uncle Mark Olmstead. Hello, and welcome to Rise and Shine, not just for mornings anymore. I'm your host, Lorianne Rising. And I'm Uncle Mark. And wow, do we have a powerful show for you today. I'm excited about it. It's going to be major. First, though, we really want to thank Christine Green again for being with us last week and talking about the art of letting go. If we're going to create a world that works for everyone, it's going to require us to let go of some of the things that we've been holding us, holding us back and that we've been hanging on to. And uh, so if you haven't heard it yet, be sure to check out that show we did last week. Definitely, especially if today's show brings up anything that feels difficult or challenging for you, because today we're going to be talking about race in America with Pastor J.W. Matt Hennessy and Reverend Dr. David Alexander, and we are incredibly honored to have them both here today. Very much so. And uh, Reverend Alexander is a social justice activist. He served on the board of directors for the community of welcoming congregations to help provide a voice for LGBTQ and allied people of faith and served as the director of strategic alliance for the Center for Spiritual Living, helping build partnerships between organizations to foster creation of a world that works for all. His numerous awards and recognitions include induction into the Martin Luther King Jr. Board of Preachers at Morehouse College, an honorary doctorate of divinity degree for the, from the Centers for Spiritual Living, and a Force for Good Award from Unity of Sacramento. He currently serves as the spiritual director for Spiritual Living Center of Atlanta, writes a monthly column for Science of Mind magazine, and lives in Lawrenceville, Georgia, with his wife, Patience, two sons, and their dog, Cooper. <laughs> and Pastor Hennessy has served in a variety of leadership capacities locally, nationally, and globally in public administration, private business, nonprofit boards and commissions, as well as community, faith-based, and healing organizations for many years. Currently, he's the senior pastor servant of Vancouver Avenue First Baptist Church in Portland, Oregon, and the convener of the Interfaith Peace and Action Collaborative, which is aimed at building bridges between law enforcement and black, brown, and indigenous communities. He and his wife, Elder Twana, have two sons, two daughters, eight grandchildren, and several godchildren. So welcome, both of you. They've been busy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. We are so honored to have you here. And, and uh, I would really like to start off the conversation at a level, uh, some thoughts that I, I was putting together uh, that where I feel like the racial problem is at, and then turn it over to you guys and, and kind of see where we take it from there. Uh, it, recently, I was listening to Carolyn Mace's most recent audio release, The uh, Courage to Confront Evil, where she makes some things very clear. Not only does evil actually exist, despite our modern attempts to deny it, she says essentially that we're being slowly, incrementally led into the service of this backward living by ignoring our still small voice. And as we tell ourselves, you know, just this once, right? In whatever way our weakness shows up. We've all heard by now that hating someone is like drinking poison and hoping the other person gets sick. As a medical intuitive, Carolyn has 
documented for decades how holding on to resentment, anger, and fear shows up in our bodies and equates to a form of self-abuse that can even prove fatal. So we know that our bodies give us feedback, but we don't always know that we've got something to heal until we get sick, which is what happens when we've been consuming unhealthy input or don't properly handle emotionally charged issues. So what we see happen on an individual body, we're also seeing happen globally. Our mother earth is a living being, a body. It's easy to see human beings as her blood cells, especially seen from the air. When they flow along the veins of the freeways, you know, roads and the trails even, as, as that, you know, that now cover the planet basically. And today her body is ill. It's like her blood has developed an autoimmune disease that's destroying the environment and the blood cells are, that we're all here as blood cells to serve. <clears throat> So is she giving us feedback about our diet of unhealthy living practices, perhaps? Can we look around today and still convince ourselves that we're somehow safe from the consequences of this crisis of courage? How long will we wait to accept her invitation to this global family reunion that's now finally taking place? Where can we find the courage to stand for our highest ideals, tune into our still small voice, and actually follow it? How can we pay attention to our dreams and take heart? I feel we're all here for a reason, and that's only now beginning to be revealed. This disease of separation called racism has not only caused much of our unhealthy environment, but is preventing us from working together to heal. So, on our taking off from there, <laughs> I appreciate indulging me in my uh, my desire to kind of connect with it with as a starting point here uh to connect this to the, to our planet's health um it it really i think just underscores the significance of the conversation that we're having because they're in our minds at least there's a way in which the, the mindset of racism is a foundational piece of separation that runs all the way through everything. And I'm, I'm curious what, what each of you think about that to, in, or if you would position it any differently. Yeah, I, def I defer to uh, Reverend David. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, well, thank you. First of all, it's, it's a real pleasure to be here, and it's especially a pleasure to share this platform with uh, Pastor Matt Hennessy, whom I adore and, and greatly miss from my time in Oregon and service uh, with uh, the Interfaith uh, Peace and Collaborative uh, Initiative that he has done there, the, really the monumental and national leading uh, work that he is doing. Uh, setting a setting a tone there in the city of Portland uh, of inter intersecting with the police department, the the mayor's office, uh, activists on the streets, and the faith community. Uh, I just admire him and the work that he's doing in the community that he represents uh, so much. So it's it's great to be here. And I uh, since he deferred to me uh, and the clock. <laughs> um, <laughs> how would I character? Well, you know, I, th I think Carolyn Mace uh, got it just right. Um, um, it is a, a we're facing currently a, a double pandemic 
right? We have the one that we can see, um, which is racism, and the one that we can't see, uh, which is uh, the COVID-19. And, and as others have coined it, uh, we're suffering from the COVID-1619, uh, this 400-year uh, uh, pandemic of, of racism and, and white supremacy, which is a manifestation of, as you said, Lori, separation. It's a separation consciousness. It's a separation really at its core. It's a separation from knowing myself. If I'm separated from my authentic wholeness, then it manifests itself as my distrust, disdain, uh, discomfort, um, and then disenfranchisement and, and mistreatment of others, of other things and other people, the object objectification of the world uh, and commodification of the world because I don't know me. And so mm -hmm. that becomes the, the healing point is as we get to know ourselves, as we get to heal ourselves back to our authentic uh, covenant with God, the creator, our spirituality, whatever, however you want to define that, uh, then we can begin to, to heal the planet. But it's all about that intersectionality between knowing ourselves and our covenant uh, with each other. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, Uncle Mark and... Uh, uh, Aunt Lori. <laughs> <laughs> well, She's going you. by Lori Ann. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> it's good all one, good. Though. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I want to certainly echo the fact that, one, it's great to be with you. And I'm grateful for the uh, honor of being with you today. And uh, from my perspective, uh, we have been blessed uh, with the presence of Reverend Dr. David Alexander here. And honestly, um, he was a tremendous help uh, to us and supportive of us in the work uh, that we have been doing here in Portland. And as an African-American pastor, uh, it's always good to know that I've got allies who will work with us and understand the struggle and, uh, and work to help in the struggle. I think that uh, Carolyn, the writer, has it absolutely correct. I think it's extremely important at this time as we look at the fact that the uh, pandemic we can't see, uh, you know, help clean the air, mm -hmm. it help clean the waterways, and now it's yep. helping to clean our conscience. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, um, uh, this country has needed to come to this reckoning uh, a long time. I have. When I graduated from high school, I was sure that we were going to solve the problem. And all my life, um, having grown up in foster homes and orphan homes, and you know, again, gone to school and earned a um, you know master's uh, at, uh, and just got a earned doctorate from a um, a seminary. Uh, but my work, as I'm working with George Fox to, to complete my earned um, doctorate of divinity, is is our doctorate of ministry. It's this is a life work. This is nothing new for those of us who have black skin. All our lives, we've been handed down the understanding that we live in a country where we have to work harder, where we uh, are absolutely subject to uh, being mistreated and how we are supposed to act if that happens. As I've said many times, even as a pastor, if I get called out early in the morning when it's dark, um, you know, I pastor an historic church, and as uh, Dr. Alexander mentioned, I work very closely with the police bureau. 
but I also know I'm a black man behind the wheel at two or three o'clock in the morning, heading to the hospital, heading to someone's family crisis, to jail, whatever it may be. And trust me, if the speed limit's 35, I will put cruise control on to make sure that I'm doing 35 miles an hour and I'm stopping fully at a stop sign because I know, and again, whether it's me, my children, whomever, we know that that stop sign or that traffic stop could not end well. Um, so that's a reality. And it's sad that this is where we are, but I think more importantly, it's good that we are where we are because I really don't want another generation of children growing up with the ugliness of racism and injustice and assuming that that's okay. Here, here. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I grew up in actually a very bigoted household. And what struck me growing up around that was just how ugly and vicious it was. I mean, just watching my stepfather's face each time it changed, every time he said something horrible. And that's what stuck with me as I was growing up was just how poisonous that mindset was. And so I've, I've tried doing what I could, not obviously having the support of my family, but doing what I could to be anything but that. But I know many obviously have not chosen that. So this is a very interesting time and place to be in history. And I do want to just say real quick as we move forward, if there's anything Mark and I say or do during this conversation um, that could be a teaching opportunity, please do use us as such. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> this is a wonderful chance for that. I think everybody could learn as well. So It's been surprising <laughs> to me to see how many of those moments have come up just in the last few interactions. Uh, we just met a wonderful guy that did the Black Lives Matter street sign up here in North Portland. And... Uh, uh, it just, it was amazing, the things I learned that day. So yeah, just. We're, we're very open to that. So as we do talk more about race in America, I wanted to ask you both, I mean, there's, there's things I've noticed. So, you know, when, when I talk with black people, I've often heard that they are told at some point that they're not black enough or that they sound white. And I've also heard <laughs> white people told to stop acting black. So when we talk about race, I mean, I, we're not really talking about skin color. There's something that's a blackness or a whiteness. And I'm wondering if you could each add to that and maybe help, help us and, and listeners understand that better. No, that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at that. This is Pastor Hennessy for your listeners. Again, we're grateful to have you here. And uh, in my life, as I said, I grew up in foster homes and orphan homes and was out on my own at 18 and went to college. But what I was not aware of is that my dialect often uh, caused people to say whether you were black, it was quit talking white. And I still remember when I graduated from high school and I was in a interview and a gentleman uh, who happened to be white was interviewing me for a job at Wicks Lumber Company. And he said, at one point he just stopped and he just looked at me and you could see the marvel in his eyes. And I'm, again, I'm 17 years old. And I said, I'm sorry, sir. He said, Mr. Hennessy, you speak beautiful English. <laughs> and I was just stunned. And by the way, I've heard that many times in my life. 
when I was in Saginaw, Michigan. Heck, I was the assistant city manager for public safety. I would talk with people on the phone about renting an apartment, and they would come to the door. And I'm, I kid you not, this is in the mid-1980s. They would come to the door, and they would say such things as, you didn't sound white on the phone. And finally, I heard that enough times that I would respond by saying, well, I think it's probably because I used a white phone in, anyway. Oh, so it's wow. not unusual. It's not unusual. Uh, but, but I'm a real proponent in the black community of, um, you know, have your dialect the way you want it when you're having fun with your friends and stuff like that. But when you go out here to compete in the world, speak the king's language and speak it well. Mm-hmm. That, that distinction even needs to be made. I've heard to it referred to as code switching. Is that yeah, right. that's called code switching? And that and that just highlights something that you know what what Dr. Hennessy just said that you know he tells his community, which is an appropriate thing for a pastor and a leader of an African American community to say, hey, you know, be as you are. But when you go for that job interview, when you do this, when you do that, you know step up to this level. That's something that I never heard, right? No. <laughs> right? As a white American. Neither, neither of us either. European yeah. American. Uh, nobody ever had to tell me, now be, make sure that when you, you know, I said dress well and do this or whatever, but, but never about my, my, my uh, intonation or language or inflection <laughs> or uh, any of that. Uh, so, so that is uh, a, a byproduct of the, what I call the soup of whiteness that we all live in, right? Whiteness, whiteness is a social construct, not a skin tone. It's a social construct, and it's something that both infects and affects all of us uh, and has for, you know, some 400 years or so. That's what we have to wake up and kind of, um, I like using the phrase, uh, decolonize our mind <laughs> from, from the ways in which whiteness has uh, uh hypnotized us into uh, accepting a normal that is not natural, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that's yeah, essentially the root of the problem. We've accepted a normal that is not natural. What Diversity is natural. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's like wildflowers. Look, look at a flower. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> diversity is natural. So why is it that we seek to homogenize and, and Americanize or Europeanize or whatever, you, whatever phrase you want to uh, uh Anything, right? Music, culture, job interviews, uh, anything. Why, why do we want to, you know, make it palatable to the, the broadest right. amount of people? Um, so diversity is, is natural. So we ought to expect uh, our culture, our language, our people, our style, our dress, our everything to be diverse. And a, a, a tone policing of that is a byproduct of of and so, okay, and racism. Exactly. So, David, uh, Reverend David, you are uh, like me, a white guy. Uh, you happen to be married to an African woman and have biracial children. Um, so, how does that show up in your life when you go out in society? What are the kinds of things that you experience? Uh, yeah, when you're Maybe out. as a, as yeah. when you're by yourself versus perhaps when you're out with your kids and your family. Yeah. Do you notice? Do you notice the differences? Have you seen them very? Yeah. Where does that? Sh- just to give us a picture of. 
Yeah, yeah, um, certainly. Uh, when, you know, when we'd be out and about in Portland, uh, we were very unique everywhere we went <laughs> because there's mm-hmm. not there's not a lot of that um, present. Uh, but even here in Atlanta, which is a very uh, diverse city, we still, uh, you know, we were out at Home Depot the other day, um, and uh, my wife got a glance uh, when it was actually another older African American man saw her with me and gave her a look that sort of indicated you know, who knows what, but we're, we're judging or interpreting what the look is, but uh, a look that I wouldn't have gotten if I was just walking down the aisle myself, um, you know, and, and it was a judgment of some kind, positively or negatively. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, so, so yeah, it's every day. It's every day. If I'm out with my kids, uh, I was out hiking with, with my parents who are here visiting right now uh, with my youngest son, William, who's three, um, and our tour guide, uh, one, of, one of members of my spiritual community who's lived and grown up here, older African-American uh, woman, gray-haired. Um, and I could see people interpreting the, the family gathering as my friend uh, and colleague in, in ministry, uh, being our tour guide, as the grandmother of the child and the rest of it. You know, as, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. all of those sorts of things uh, happen, you know, every day. Um, and, and, you know, similar to, to Pastor Matt, I, I interpret... Um, the work that I do and the passion that I have for it through the lens of the experience that both of my sons have with the mm-hmm. expectation that the, the world that is receiving my 15-year-old uh, will be different when my three-year-old is 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of how I measure time and the action that I'm taking to, to, to see a marked difference in, in that period of time uh, and beyond. Well, let's definitely hope that there is a a massive change in that period of time over the next few years. Um, But I do need to interrupt the conversation because we need to take a break here just real soon. Uh, Before we go, though, if you're listening and really valuing this conversation, we do hope that you give a review for us on whatever platform you're listening at. to. And, uh, you know, of course, we'd love a five-star review and, uh, of course, sharing this this show with your friends and family as well. But wait for LaRonda's song that's coming up next before you do your review, because when we come back, you'll hear Portland's own First Lady of the Blues, LaRonda Steele. We have the honor of hearing her sing at our spiritual community as well as gigs around town. And, oh, man, cannot say enough about the power of her presence and her voice. Um, when when uh, we reached out to her about being a part of the show, she suggested the song, Keep Your Eyes on the Prize. And I just, I, I love this song. You're going to love it. So she's recorded that on her Spirit of Freedom album, a compilation of stories and songs that create a journey through the civil rights movement. So stay tuned for LaRonda's soul music right after this. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. 
In our changing world, how can you protect the self-esteem, confidence, and dreams of the children you love in just five minutes a day, even from a distance? To learn more about Uncle Mark's Best Indie Book Award-winning kids book, his music, and resources to support families, visit truesunbeam.com. And if you're an author or musician with a similar mission, learn how to be a guest on the Rise and Shine radio show. Visit Uncle Mark at truesunbeam.com. Are you a woman who's tired of staying silent and people-pleasing at the expense of your own health, wealth, and happiness? Discover the roadmap to self-confidence and freedom in Lorianne Rising's international award-winning book, You, Rising, Reclaim Your Life, Live Your Purpose. And if you're an author whose nonfiction or memoir makes a powerful difference, you're invited to be a guest on the Rise and Shine radio show. For books, resources, and show details, visit LorianneRising.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Paul and Silas were bound in jail. Had no money for the gold hell bail. Keep your eyes on the prize and hold on. Hold on. And hold on Paul and Silas began to shout Jail door opened and they walked out Keep your eyes on the prize And hold on, hold on I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now Keep your eyes on the prize And hold on, hold on Hold on, hold on Keep your eyes on the prize And hold on, hold on Now the only thing we did wrong We stayed in us away too long Keep your eyes on the prize and hold on Was the day that we started to fight Keep your eyes on the prize And hold on Hold on Hold on Keep your eyes on the prize And hold on We've met jail and violence too But God's love will see us through Keep your eyes on the prize And hold on, hold on Hold on, hold on on. Keep 
present Hold on, hold on Now the only chains we can stand Is the chain of hand to hand Keep your eyes on the prize And hold on Hold on, hold on. Keep, Keep your eyes, eyes on the prize. Hold on, hold on. Please, y'all. Hold on, just hold on. Keep your eyes on the prize and hold on, hold. Wow. Sing it, LaRonda. Yes. Welcome back. You're listening to Rise and Shine, and that was Keep Your Eyes on the Prize, sung by LaRonda Steele. And we are hope you're as moved by the power of her voice as we are. And if you want to check out more of her music, her website is simply LaRondaSteele.com. It's L-A-R-H-O-N-D-A-S-T-E-E-L-E.com. And we've been talking with Pastor Hennessy and Reverend Alexander today about race in America. And the one, the one line about that song, tell me, tell me what you guys think about this. Starting to fight. The one thing that we did right was when we start to fight. <laughs> now, there's, there's this thing that I've, I've had that I've kind of got ingrained in me that, that what we resist persists. Yes. And so how how do you balance that? How do you, how do you walk into this situation, this racism, this thing that we know we have to change? We know we can't allow this to continue. It just isn't, it isn't human. And, and not fight it, but, but change it. Where would you go with that? Yeah, from uh, from my perspective, first of all, listening to LaRonda makes me want to preach. So <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> okay, we'll just interrupt with a preach every now and then, right? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, uh, knowing Dr. Alexander, I know that he has the same spirit. Um, what I would suggest, well, here's what I would say. If you think about what the civil rights movement was all about, it was Dr. King would tell you, and Mrs. King, because she was my godmother, told me many times that Dr. King's thing was not about trying to replace white supremacy with black supremacy. It was really going back to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and saying, America, this is what you promised. You promised this. You're the one that wrote these documents and said, this is who we are. If you think about his, um, many people remember the refrain, I have a dream, but they often do not, under, do not remember, did not get the exposure to the preamble to his speech, I have a dream, where he said, we have come to uh, Washington, D.C. to cash a check. Uh, because this check has come back to the black community marked insufficient funds. He said, so we are here to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. And the reality is that while we live in a culture that uh, is majority white, we live in a culture that has been very oppressive 
why did the um, why did the knee on the neck of uh, Mr. Floyd move us so much? Number one, because we could see it. Number two, because we were told it was eight minutes and 46 seconds. I would also add that you saw the look on his face, which was, I don't care. As he was hearing people tell him to get off the guy's neck, uh, nothing moved him. At one point, he put his hands in his pocket, but his facial expression never changed. And for, for those of us in the black and brown and indigenous community, what I can tell you is that is a metaphor for what life in America has been for 400 years, because it is as if, I mean, for me, it was like the movies that you watch and you see Bull Connor saying that it's a matter of mind over matter. I don't mind. And they, meaning black people, don't matter. So how do we do this? One, white people know what they need to do. It's not, and, and I hear that all the time. We don't know what to do. What should we do? Uh, uh, in my view, it's about treating us and dealing with us as if we're your brother and sister. It's about being honest about the very unfortunate divide that has occurred that, by the way, isn't your fault, but it got passed down. Mm -hmm. But your job is not to be passive. It is to now say, you know what, I've got to do more about this because there cannot be any more George Floyds under the knee of anybody. And that we pass down, that's what we're looking for, to your children, those same lessons. That, that's at least where I'd start. Yeah, I would add to that that you know, particularly in the in the uh, spiritual community, new thought or spiritual community, awakened uh, enlightenment communities uh, by various names, we have to um, we have to get over something or uh, um, divest ourselves of this notion uh, that peace is passive. Um, that if we just hold hands and sing kubaya and believe in good things and and buy organic food, uh, you know, <laughs> and don't use plastic bags, that it'll all be better. Um, it, peace is the presence of something. It's the presence of a dynamic force for good. It's the presence of 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 the natural order and state of things, which is which is harmony. That that life lives in a balance and a harmony. And so when we talk about you know, the, the fight for racial equality, uh, we're talking about presencing something that is natural, that is about the harmony of, of uh, again, because we're both pastors here, we'll use God's language, but the, it's the presence of God's justice, the presence of, of, of God's natural order of things, uh, that, that humanity live in harmony with each other. That's what we're trying to presence. What's in resistance to that is white supremacy. So, yeah, there's a fight because there's a push against the natural order of things. So, I have a toddler who you may hear in the background. He's already come into the room a few times. Um, <laughs> and, you know, if he's running around with scissors, uh, you know, it, it, is, it is beholden upon me to remove the scissors from his hands, right? And to say, 
yeah, I don't want you running around with scissors. And if he grabs the scissors and does it again, then I have to intervene and say, no, this is not what we're doing right now. Uh, and, and this is not the proper way to handle this particular uh, tool and or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we think that doing piecework is just allowing everything. Don't, don't be confrontational. Don't get, you know, just hold conscious. If I just held consciousness about my son running around with scissors, my sitting and holding consciousness wouldn't do much. Right. So sometimes we have to get up and get active <laughs> and mm-hmm. remove the scissors mm-hmm. from people who shouldn't have them yeah. when they shouldn't have them. I think the other thing that this has caused is too many times um, before George Floyd, if you will, the response from a white person is I'm not a racist. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the reality is that there are racist veins or thoughts in many of us. We need to just be honest about that. And the truth is what this uh, presencing that uh, Dr. Alexander is talking about is exactly how I on the faith side have gathered in our common table, which includes every faith, every major faith uh, in Oregon. And I'm asking these faith leaders to sign on to uh, a recognition of this very territory in 1844 said, by the way, we want no black people here. This is supposed to be a white utopia. And if there are black people here who are free, beat them enough that they will leave. And that was sanctioned again in 1859 when we became a state and it has been passed down from generation to generation. That's what we have going on as you said, Lori, I think, and Mark, I, Uncle Mark, I've heard you say, and, and Dave, it's a choice. The fact is, I've got the choice to be a person who is open and uh, welcoming to, to my brother and sister, no matter who they are. You know, I, I think of this when I was at Nike, it was not appropriate to one of my Southern, um, actually Caucasian brothers, who was a deacon in his church, but heard me give a diversity speech. And I was embracing the LBGTQ community when, as far as he was concerned, that was against the Bible. I was being completely sadistic and he was going to do everything he could to get me tossed out of Nike. Well, I left on my own nine years later, but that was his odyssey. So I think that we we are competing with these kind of handed down things. And we need to remember there are some people who are going to get it. I mean, there was a lady who walked in my church one one Saturday right after George Floyd. She walked in. She said she had never been here before. I had no clue who she was. She walked in and said, I'm 70 years old and I'm embarrassed to be white. I said, well, honey, that's where it starts. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's pretty cool. That, that takes a lot of that's, courage. I mean, I well, think that's one of the things that. She's our, speaking for a lot of us, though, in, yeah. in, in a, lot of, a lot of ways right now. Well, and our culture has such a deep shame attached to admitting we're wrong that I think in many ways it sort of hinders our ability at an individual level to change our thinking if we have you know if we're waking up to the reality that gosh some of these things that I am or have been or was handed down or you know if I'm I'm being racist and not aware of it how how can we evolve our thinking and be able to admit that freely without 
it's like, experiencing it's like we have to make our, we need to make our parents wrong or make uh, our the way we've been raised wrong or uh, there's it, there seems to it, be a, a letting go thing yeah yeah absolutely there's a huge distinction between shame and guilt you know the the sociologist Brene Brown talks about this um, shame is identif- is attached to your identity you know, who I am. If I feel shame, it's because I've, I, I identify with, with whatever it is as part of my beingness, whereas guilt is about something that I've done. And, and so when we, we have to, in this work, white people have to, in this work, find the path to liberating themselves from shame. Because, again, when we talk about whiteness, whiteness is a social construct. It's not your skin tone. So as much as, uh, you know, we, we use it because it's easy to use. I say I'm white, but I'm European American, okay, who has white conditioning, okay? Now, if I practice in that white conditioning and I perpetuate the thinking that that white t- conditioning gives to me and I, and I inflict that conditioning on uh, people of color or communities I engage with, uh, then, then I should be called out and should feel guilt, uh, you know, about that behavior and should seek to change my behavior. Um, but I, I can liberate myself from the idea that I'm, that I'm white if I'm willing to take responsibility for the conditioning that I've been given, it's been handed down to me, and it's in the textbooks, it's everywhere. So it's not anybody's fault. It's just what is so. But you, you can't be free. Right? Ask any alcoholic. You can't get free <laughs> until you admit what is so. Until yeah. you mm-hmm. begin with, I've got a problem, and my life has become unmanageable. And that's where white America is right now. And I, I actually had this download in meditation uh, a few weeks back. I was reading a book by James O'Day called The Conscious Activist and was putting some things together for my community. And I got this download. I was like, we should deal with, with racism like the disease that it is. And, and I thought of the 12 steps. And I thought, oh, wow, what if we applied that to this? And, and, and so I got this dick, started taking notes, started journaling about it. I thought, oh, this is my big book. I'm a, this would be my, my breakout <laughs> moment. Well, I did a quick Google search and boom, it was right there. It's already been done. Uh, the, the, the 12 steps of recovery from white conditioning. There was a group, I think, in Minnesota, that, uh, an AA group that did it. They've rewritten the 12 steps uh, and related it to dealing with white supremacy and white conditioning. I highly encourage everybody to go find that work. I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. Uh, <laughs> but God gets all the credit anyway, right? There's only one mind. Yeah. Uh, but, it, but if you think about this, because where we are, is this needing to sober up to this sobering reality. We have a problem, and our collective life has become unmanageable. That's what happened in that George Floyd moment that everybody saw and witnessed. It became the, the, the Edmund Pettus Bridge moment of this generation, right? It, it was failed, and it, we saw we have a problem, and our collective life has become unmanageable. And of course, step two is we come to believe that a power greater than us can restore us to sanity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or as they rewrite it in those uh, 12 steps from white conditioning, they say, we come to believe that our ignorance is an invitation to growth and learning. Mm -hmm. And that's what that woman who walked into Pastor Matt's church, you know, presenced for herself, that her, her ignorance and her previous shame became an invitation 
because mm-hmm. of the way that Pastor Matt received her became an invitation to to her learning. And yeah. so that's what we need to invite more people into. That's it. Okay. Well, yeah. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you. And I think you'll find the black and brown community very, very open to do everything that we need to do to help, right? Mm-hmm. You're not in this by yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I've, I guess I'm, I'm hearing variations on that, and I'm so grateful for those who are willing to help. And I'm also very much understanding those who have the perspective where it's like, hey, this is really a white issue, and I'm exhausted trying to help you clean up your mess type of perspective. And, I, and I've seen a big spectrum in between. And I empathize with that because I, I cannot even begin to fathom what it's like to walk in those shoes. And I want to, I guess I want to honor that too, that for, for people like you, Pastor Matt, I am so grateful because I can sit at your feet and learn from you. And you always have beautiful and amazing things to teach, and I'm grateful for that. So, And just watching what you do in, in your life and, and in mm-hmm. the community and day after day. And, and I mean, the, the work that you've done personally with the police. And, uh, I mean, you've been a civilian leader of police and fire. And uh, so, I mean... What what are what would you say are some of the tools that just just to cite a specific example? What options did did officers have at their disposal that, for instance, would have saved uh, Richard Brooks's life in mm. this situation? Yeah, no. Uh, first of all, let me let me just say a quick word about the uh, subject matter, and then come back to that. Yeah, no, yeah. And I I appreciate Lori and your comment about you can appreciate those who. Have, are tired, who are black, brown, or indigenous, and saying, look, I'm tired of this, and this is your work and not my work. Um, when I was over at Legacy Emanuel one day, they had about 400 employees out there standing for a session. It was great. But one of the things I said is that what, this may be your work, but it's our work too. And our job is to be willing to, to be accepting. And the other thing is... I don't want to hand down to the next generation on my end that, guess what, white people are now, you know, feeling pretty rough about how we have been treated, so therefore they want to treat you differently, be mean to them. You know what I mean? I I believe that my willingness to be accepting and the way I say to my people, be accepting, it's a reminder of what, who came before us? And the struggles and troubles and issues they dealt with, but they did it for us. Therefore, we have to do this for the next generation. In terms of what I believe could have been done differently in Atlanta, I was terribly shocked that, and I've been on those police stops before that somebody calls and there's a person who's drunk and, you know, or asleep at the wheel or something like that. I wish, and those officers were talking to this guy for like 40 minutes, um, you know, having a pretty cordial, you know, exchange with each other. At, at some point, in my view, there should have been a moment where they said, look, let's park this car over here and we're going to take you in our car to your sister or we're going to call your sister and have her come pick you up. But your car needs to stay here. 
right? So you're acknowledging that he failed a sobriety test and you're acknowledging the fact that he absolutely cannot drive. But what you're doing is offering him a, you know, opportunity to say, here's how we can use our police discretion, which by the way, I've been around police officers for a lot of my life. And many of them are grateful that they never had to go for their gun. The gun or the stun gun is not your first place to go. By the way, even if he starts running, you've got his driver's license and his keys. So- Let him run. Let him run. Where is he going? Right. Especially <laughs> when he's drunk. I mean, he's not exactly. going to go that far. He wasn't exactly sprinting away. It was kind of a, you know, a pretty awkward gamble. Yeah. 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 And it seemed that the officer was more upset that he had gotten his taser from him than he was yeah. to say, let me do my job, you know. Well, where does the word serve come in in a situation like that? I mean, isn't it protect and serve? Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, and even further, it goes a step further uh, to, to the, 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 the pledge or the oath that they take as officers, you know, going back to the case of George Floyd, he was handcuffed and, uh, you know, ha- hands behind his back and on the ground at the moment that he's handcuffed he is he is in the care and the custody right of the police department Mm -hmm. those Mm -hmm. officers have have taken a sworn duty to protect and serve and and george was in their care and custody it's not like there was a a, you know a battle for for um you know possession or or you know he's in their care and custody at that moment and and immobilized. Same. So, so we have a, you know, there you have the two extremes. I, you know, we go back to parenting. I'm talking to my 15 year old son. And it's like, well, you know, Rashad, uh, Rashad ran and and George uh, complied. Both of them ended up in the same place. Right. Uh, so my 15 year old's looking at me. You know, what do I say as a as a parent when you go out on your own? How to behave and how to. You know, having the conversation with our our black and brown uh, indigenous uh, children, um, it, it's not enough anymore, right? It's not enough about well, make sure you do this, make sure you keep your hands on two and four, and say sir and yes sir, and da da da. That, that's not that conversation isn't adequate anymore. We need to be having a much bigger conversation, right? And I think the Atlanta situation tells us about consciousness, because I'm thinking you are officers in Atlanta. Demonstrations are going on downtown. Fires are going on everywhere. Why would you want to put yourself in another position of creating another inflammatory moment? Right. Yeah. And you, know, you know the whole world's watching. Business. Yeah, there you go. Which, which just to me indicates how absolutely ingrained it is that they get away with it. And it's, it's a oh. structural, systemic issue. And I apologize because we are like right at the end of our time. Uh, so, so, and so I'm hoping. <laughs> we're really hoping you can stay a little longer and we can, uh, we can continue <laughs> yes. this conversation after, uh, after we, we, we close off the official hour here. It's amazing yeah, how fast an hour goes when you really want to continue it. It, it is. So, so uh, will you guys be willing to stick, stick around for a little bit afterwards? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. awesome. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. So before we go real quick, do you have any recommendations for our listeners that are hearing this now in terms of how they can continue their work or even get in touch with you, um, you know, what, what might be next for them? One of the things we have in, in Portland is an educational group called Race Talks. 
led by Donna Maxey. She's been doing that for about 10 years. Al Jubitz has let me know that there evidently is a website that says uh, it's entitled 75 Ways That White People Can Help. I've not seen it yet, but I would offer that as an opportunity. And then the other is really be present. One of the things that uh, Brian Stevenson talks about is being proximate, um, being willing to be uncomfortable, change the narrative, and recognize the importance of hope. We're going to get through this, but we're going to do it together. Yeah, that's exactly. I would would just encourage a particularly um, uh, white community to to do your work, roll up your sleeves, Um, you know, look at the 12 steps of of recovery from white conditioning. There are a ton of books to read. There are videos. I think the point about, you know, not leaning on or depending on uh, a person of color to teach you is to say that there's plenty of resources out there available that you can do and that you can engage in. Uh, and if you do engage a person of color, uh, there are plenty of well-trained facilitators, uh, teachers, etc. So pay them, right? Hire mm-hmm. them. Uh, mm-hmm. Hire them for your group or your church or your company or whatever and, and pay them. For the ones who are trained to do this work, uh, bring them in and, and, and pay them. Um, the other thing is, is to be willing to do the heavy lifting. Uh, so often we ask the question of, um, you know, what can I do? The real question for white people is, what are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to give up? Perfect. It's going to cost you something. It's got to change, but there's going to be change and it has to start individually. And like, uh, so, and I, I just am so grateful for, for yeah, both of you sticking you. around uh, for a little you. bit longer to continue this as well. Yeah. But uh, before we go from this particular hour, we have a couple of quick reminders to be sure to check out Rise and Shine Fan Club, where we'll be able to continue this conversation, which is the Family Friends Action Network, and is a great way for all of us to continue going deeper into these conversations. Plus, contributions by fans are a big part of what keeps the show on the air. So please visit riseandshineas1.com and click on the Fan Club to learn more. So next week, we'll be interviewing our very own Lori Ann Rising. Mm-hmm-hmm. to talk more about the real-life hacks for reclaiming your personal power, about how she transformed her life from an abuse victim to living her dreams, and the key strategies she continues to use every day. This is stuff we haven't shared on the show before, so you don't want to miss it. Yeah, and thank you both again, uh, Pastor Hennessy and Reverend Alexander, for being here for your courage in leading us and teaching us all the way through this amazing conversation. And uh, we thank the listeners for being here too and participating and doing your part. So, so until next week, wherever you are, there's time for remembering to rise, rise and, and shine. shine. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Rise and Shine. Please join Lorianne Rising and Uncle Mark Olmstead for another great show next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, keep rising and shining.